This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. We are glad you're here for a new episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. A little housekeeping before we begin. Unlike my children, Sarah's get an entire week of school off for fall break. So she is out traveling with family this week. But don't worry, you'll hear her voice in just a few minutes and on Friday's episode. If you are a premium listener, you know that we make two paywalled podcasts. So in addition to the two episodes, Tuesday and Friday, of Pantsuit Politics that appear for free in your podcast feed, we make two other shows Monday through Thursday. Sarah's show, Good Morning, is going to take this week off. But all of our premium listeners will receive all four episodes of the show that I make more to say this week. And on more to say, we're going to cover so much legal news, my head is spinning. So if you're looking to follow the former president's journey through the justice system, I invite you to come along for the ride with me there on more to say. All the information to do that will be in the show notes. There's a lot going on this week. We've had some major markers of time, especially over the past few days. Thursday evening, Senator Dianne Feinstein passed away. She died at age 90, the longest-serving woman senator in our country's history. As Sean Hubler put it in a New York Times piece, Dianne Feinstein had several lifetimes worth of accomplishment. She has been a pioneer for women in leadership, for stemming the tide of gun violence, for government transparency and accountability, especially following September 11th. She sometimes asked very tough questions, She sometimes gave very tough answers. She was overall unintimidated by public life and the pressure that accompanied it, and I know that she will be missed. On Sunday, former President Jimmy Carter turned 99. He's the first president in our history to reach that age. Former President Carter continues to receive hospice care, surrounded by friends and family as he lives out the final chapter in his extraordinary life of service to others. And another big marker of time happened on Saturday when Congress passed a continuing resolution to fund the government through November 17th. That resolution will fund the government at current levels. It is a hold, please, so that we can buy more time to pass appropriations bills. President Biden signed that measure into law at 11.28 p.m., 32 minutes before funding expired. The bill also reauthorizes the FAA and the National Flood Insurance Program through the end of the year. It includes $16 billion for much-needed disaster relief. It is not a perfect bill. We could be doing this entire shutdown drama again right before Thanksgiving. It does not include additional funding for Ukraine, which is why Mike Quigley of Illinois, a Democrat, voted no on a package that all of his Democratic colleagues in the House supported. It is why Michael Bennett of Colorado held the package up for a few hours in the Senate. But both Speaker McCarthy and Leader Schumer assure their colleagues that Congress will quickly take up the matter of more aid for Ukraine, as well as other provisions that are hotly debated. In the end, or at least in this iteration of the end, Speaker McCarthy at personal peril, did what Sarah and I hoped he would do. 
He put something on the floor that both Democrats and Republicans could vote for, and it worked. Democrats supplied 209 of the 335 votes for the continuing resolution in the House. The Republican caucus split on it. And McCarthy's future as Speaker is in jeopardy because of that. He did the right thing. It is a happy outcome, if not a perfect one. Last week, we were hearing from air traffic controllers and military personnel, USDA workers. You all told us that you were anxious because even though your paycheck was not certain to keep coming, your bills sure were. You told us that you felt disrespected by the way some members of Congress were toying with your livelihoods and disregarding the impact of the work that you do every day. We just want to acknowledge that people who work for the government often do so at a lot of sacrifice. You could take higher paying, sometimes more stable, more respected, easier jobs in the private sector. The roller coaster that Congress put us on over the past few weeks is reflective of many aspects of our governance right now. And I am so glad that at least for the moment, it has come to a stop. There is even more news, so much related to former President Trump and congressional Republicans and, yes, Hunter Biden. And here Sarah and I are rolling into your podcast feed, asking you, as all this is going on, to turn your attention to Israel for a little while today. And that's because the United States isn't the only country in the world wrestling with very hard questions about our government. Sarah and I learned so much about how we'd like our system to operate and so much about ourselves when we look outward. Israel is facing a real test of democracy as a far-right-wing coalition in its legislature, the Knesset, pushes to overhaul the judiciary. They're asking serious questions about the balance of power. And Israel doesn't have a constitution. So you might read articles saying it is hurtling toward a constitutional crisis. That doesn't mean a document. That means a crisis of its very makeup. So today, Yair Rosenberg joins us to talk about what's happening with Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Israeli public. Yair is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he covers politics, culture, and religion and writes the Deep Shuttle newsletter. He is a delight to talk to and such a wealth of insight and information. Whether you're new to thinking about Israel or deeply immersed in Israeli politics, we think you'll find something valuable and relevant to your understanding of governance in today's conversation. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Welcome back to Pansy Politics. Thanks for joining us again. It's great to be back. We wanted to check in with you about all of the developing crises in Israel. And particularly now, because the Israeli Supreme Court is hearing arguments about the judicial overhaul that Netanyahu's government has enacted. I wondered before we dive into the specifics of that, if you could help us put in context what the Supreme Court looks like in Israel, given that there is no constitution? That's a great question, because when you hear the word Supreme Court, you might think a sort of one-to-one equivalence with the United States Supreme Court. Um, But Israel's Supreme Court is unique in a whole bunch of respects. So like you said, one of those respects is that Israel doesn't have a constitution, and that grants Israel's Supreme Court a great amount of power over time to decide what laws are and aren't acceptable. Israel has a sort of body of law that's quasi-constitutional. They're called basic laws. And over time, the court has come to interpret those laws as sort of a uh, a nascent constitution. But the government can constantly pass new laws of those sorts or try to repeal other ones. And so it's a little bit up in the air. And Israel's Supreme Court also, you know, just like in terms of the specifics it has, you know, 15 judges, you know, like many other countries have much larger Supreme Courts than we do. And the other thing to really understand about Israel's Supreme Court is that members are not appointed by the Israeli parliament. It's not like in the United States where Congress uh, takes a president's nomination and then confirms or doesn't confirm the nominee to the Supreme Court. Instead, there's a judicial selection body that includes uh, judges themselves, um, members of the Israeli legal establishment, and then some members of parliament uh, from both the coalition and the opposition. 
So in practice, you can see that the legal establishment plus the judges themselves sort of have a veto over who gets to be on the Supreme Court. So it's not as democratically accountable, you might say, as other Supreme Courts. And the Supreme Court at the same time has more power than many other Supreme Courts. And so this has been a source of contention within Israel among people who are on, say, the Israeli right and are upset about rulings of the Israeli Supreme Court, which they think is too activist and doing things that are anti-democratic. Uh, and on the other hand, also some good governance side of experts who look at this and say it's unhealthy for a democracy to have an unelected court that exercises such outsized power. Uh, so into that uh, situation comes Netanyahu's very hard right coalition with a proposal to uh, reform the Supreme Court, which is not something that most Israelis oppose. Polls show that most Israelis do agree that there should be some sort of reform of the Israeli Supreme Court. But if uh, the problem perceived with the Supreme Court is that it's basically superpowered, right? That it's too powerful relative to the legislature. So the reform put forward by the coalition inverts the problem and basically subordinates the judiciary to the coalition, to the elected parliament, and basically says the, um, and now not all of these laws are passed, but this is the proposal, that the parliament could override any ruling of the Supreme Court with a simple majority, that the parliament is going to be the ones who get a veto over who gets chosen to the Supreme Court, things like this. So basically, it didn't so much adjust or carefully reform the Supreme Court as, you know, decimated uh, and its authority. So these laws haven't been passed. One small part of this package has been passed, but the rest hasn't been passed. But for many months, this has provoked hundreds of thousands of Israelis to protest in the streets all around Israel against what they see as sort of a uh, power grab by the parliament, which is controlled by Netanyahu's hard right-wing coalition. Um, because it's not just that they oppose this particular package of reforms, it's that they don't trust the power that it would give to this government and this legislature if the Supreme Court was, you know, shoved out of the way. So that's a very long way of getting from what is the Israeli Supreme Court to what's going on right now with it. Well, I think that final component is something that I've come to understand is really essential, which if you're looking at it through the lens of the United States, you'd say, well, the parliament has a check on the executive, but that's not really the case in Israel, right? the coalition government really acts in step with the executive branch. Yeah, so the thing to understand is that Israel has a prime minister. The prime minister is the leader of the majority of parliament, uh, and they basically just act in concert. There are 120 seats in the Israeli parliament, the Israeli Knesset. If you have 61 of those seats, which this current coalition does, it has 64, you can basically pass any laws and the opposition can't really do anything about it. It's not like you could filibuster it in the United States Congress. It's not like there are certain uh, higher majority thresholds for most things. And so the main check on government power, on prime ministerial power, is actually the Supreme Court. That's how Israel evolved. Whereas in the United States, we have two houses in the legislature. We have a separate executive who isn't an explicit member, like, you know, he's not sitting around in Congress. You know, Joe Biden is not hanging out there. He does his own thing. He's got his own set of uh, officers and people who are accountable to him and his own authorities and powers. Um, and then, of course, you have the Supreme Court. So you have a much more uh, complicated set of balances and checks uh, in the United States than you do in Israel. And so changing the court in Israel is a much more dramatic step than it might be in some other places. And it's made even more dramatic by the personal investment that Netanyahu has in some of these reforms. Can you talk a little bit about what is driven here by the the far right coalition that might even go beyond what Netanyahu personally might want and what is driven by his own 
interest in sort of saving his skin in several criminal matters. I like coming on the podcast because, you, you know, you've done your reading and you already know the, the right questions to ask. And uh, it is the one of the big questions about these attempts to, you know, change Israel's judiciary uh, is, is this about Netanyahu getting himself off the hook for various corruption cases that he's currently on trial for? And the answer is we don't really know because you can't read minds. And, you know, there's two ways you can look at it. You could say he's sort of, you know, a sort of cynical mastermind who has this entire plan laid out, which is to uh, either actually disempower the Supreme Court or just to, to intimidate it, right? Basically to hold a lot of this legislation over it in order to sort of soften up whatever, you know, convictions might be in the pipeline. On um, the other side, uh, uh, you could just say that uh, Netanyahu is actually along for this ride, and it's not actually something he came up with. And I actually think that's probably more likely, because if you look at the criminal case against Netanyahu, it's been going on for many years. These trials take a very long time. Some of the stuff, you know, seems to be working out better for him. It's not clear how it's going to actually turn out, and he could probably drag it out for a very long time, because while he's in office, it's hard to bring him to court and put him on trial anyway. And on the other hand, um, there are people in his coalition that he needs uh, to stay in power, to stay prime minister in the hardest right wing parties in the Israeli coalition who have for years been, you know, sort of telegraphing their plans to gut the Israeli judiciary, because, again, they see it as a block to the sorts of things they want to do. And those people, it's sort of like uh, if we get an analogy to the American government, we're seeing it right now. Kevin McCarthy doesn't really want to shut down the government. He doesn't have some master plan to shut down the U.S. government. But he needs like his entire party to actually vote to keep the government open. And he can't get certain hard right members of the Republican Party in the House uh, to sign on. And so that's why we look like we're heading for a government shutdown. Um, and so Netanyahu doesn't want to be Kevin McCarthy. He doesn't want to be because if he becomes Kevin McCarthy, he loses his job. Right. He no longer has a majority. Right. So he needs to keep everybody happy. And there's a certain segment of his uh, coalition that has this plan. Um, and they basically walked in on day one and say, this is what we want to do. And he let them do it. And ever since then, he's been trying to sort of position himself as the reasonable arbiter between the crazy people who just happen to be in his coalition, right, and the protesters who are also a bit extreme. And I'm going to be the person who's going to resolve this. Uh, but in reality, he's the one who allowed it to happen. But I don't think it's because he wants to get out of his court cases. I think because he needs to uh, keep these people on side. And that involves letting them run the show on some of these things. In point of fact, if Netanyahu wanted to gut the Supreme Court, he's a much cannier politician. He's, you know, one of the most successful living politicians in the world today. He would not have dropped a giant, very scary package with a whole bunch of different components to, you know, disempower Israel's Supreme Court all at once. He would have started with one very small piece of it. Right. And said, well, this is one that we can mostly agree on. And he'd do that. And then he'd do the next one a few months later and the next one a few months after that. And it would be a lot easier. And he's very good at this sort of thing. That's not what happened here. Right. They dropped everything very early on, pretty much right after this government was sworn in. And they haven't been able to escape it ever since. It's either a catastrophically bad move on the part of a politician who usually knows what he's doing, or he sort of has to do it because this was what he promised them. And he said, I'd let you, you know, this is what they demanded in order to be in his coalition. So I'm inclined to that. But, you know, both of these narratives, you know, they're you know serious people who believe both. Well, that actually is a perfect transition to what I was going to ask, which is I read the big piece in The New York Times about Netanyahu today. And I think there's parts of him I understand. There's parts of him I don't, because how can we ever fully understand the inner workings of a person's mind or much less his family dynamics, which were very interesting. But I think what I really don't understand is this component of his hard right coalition and the the motivations of particularly the ultra-Orthodox 
citizens of Israeli society, I think through our American lens, you know, I always understood Israel to be sort of secular and liberal. And there were even components of the ultra-Orthodox politics that she was talking about in that article about like how they are not included in the military conscription and all that stuff. And I was like, wait, what? I think that's just a huge component of his coalition that I, I agree with you seems to be steering more than anything else that I don't understand. Yeah, so one of the reasons why this judicial reform became so important to many parts of his coalition is that it wasn't like just one part of the coalition that was into it. It was a, a lot of different parts. Um, so you have, on the one hand, you have sort of this uh, more hard right settler movement component, and they see the Supreme Court as an obstacle to them building more settlements in the West Bank and acting as they want, you know, when they're engaged in military conflict, say in Gaza, right? And the Supreme Court has rules about certain sorts of, you know, like all you know, legislatures and legislative bodies, and sorry, uh, judicial bodies, about how you can and can't act during wartime. And so they see the Supreme Court as an obstacle uh, to many of the things they want to do and an anti-democratic obstacle from their perspective. But then you also have who you just mentioned, the ultra-Orthodox. These are, you know, very traditionally religious, you know, uh, you recognize them by their very distinctive dress and the fact that they spend uh, most of their time uh, studying Jewish texts and not participating necessarily in the economy uh, and not being drafted into the Israeli army. Israel has a universal draft. But one of the carve-outs to that universal draft for their army is uh, for ultra-Orthodox citizens who study in yeshiva instead. They study in, uh, you know, traditional Jewish religious institutions. And that's been a carve-out that was, you know, created at the very beginning of the founding of the state when there weren't very many ultra-Orthodox Jews. Like you said, it was a, it's a much more secular place. And the first prime minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, thought, we give these people, you know, some little special carve-out for them because they really don't want to serve in the army. They want to focus on their religious studies in the Holy Land, the holiest place for Jews. Um, and you know what? They're yesterday's news, right? The, the vanguard of, of Israel and, and the Jewish people is uh, this more secular Judaism. And so they'll die out and we'll be nice to them until that happens. As it turns out, birth rates didn't agree, right? And the ultra-Orthodox had many, many more children and they successfully educated those children. And uh, although, of course, people come and go from these communities, it's very insular and very self-contained and they vote and in a democratic society. You can then create an entire block, right, that, that has, uh, you know, particular demands and can then basically tell people like Benjamin Netanyahu that this is really important to us. So why is Supreme court reform important to the ultra-Orthodox, very different from the settlers. They don't have that much investment in the settlement project. In fact, at different times, the ultra-Orthodox have been supportive of, you know, concessions to the Palestinians, although today less so. But what they are concerned with is they want to make sure that they can never be drafted into the Israeli army, because that is not something they do. That is not part of their culture, right? And they want government support, not just to not be drafted into the Israeli army, but to get subsidies. How do you maintain a society where you're sitting and studying religious texts and you don't participate as much in the economy and you don't go into the army? You you need government support and welfare uh, to support your extremely large community and growing families. And so these communities want to codify that. And depending on who's in power, there's sort of a tug of war. And when more liberal uh, Israeli governments come into power, they tend to try to restrict some of those subsidies and create incentives for uh, ultra-Orthodox men to go into the workforce. And they start drafting small numbers of ultra-Orthodox Jews who are interested. And all of this is anathema to the leadership of this community. And the, the problem is, is that previous governments have passed such laws. And when those laws are not obeyed or a more right-wing government comes in but isn't able to repeal the law because not everyone in the right-wing government is unhappy with such laws then the Supreme Court upholds those laws or says, 
you committed to XYZ reforms or we have uh, general laws about equality and you can't treat certain citizens differently than others. And if they're not serving in the army, they're we're violating those rules. The Supreme Court is interfering with this arrangement. And so one way to solve that problem is to remove the check of the Supreme Court so that you can basically permanently instantiate this arrangement. Now, long term for Israel, how do you have a growing population that isn't as involved in the workforce and doesn't serve in the army, right, and have a thriving, you know, society of the sort that Israel has is a major, major question. Uh, but that is not the concern, obviously, of, of the politicians for this community who are looking out for their own communal interests. And so, yeah, so now you've got already now two components who are for this. And then within Netanyahu's only good party, the mainstream right, many of them have looked askance at the Supreme Court, again, for blocking just general right-wing legislation as a sort of uh, club of the sort of left-wing elites. Because remember, again, the judges themselves, plus the legal establishment, like lawyers from the Israeli Bar Association, basically get to decide who goes on the court. And this chafes against many Likud voters, many of whom come from uh, the Mizrahi uh, communities are Jews from Middle Eastern lands who fled to Israel, unlike Ben-Gurion's people who were Ashkenazi Europeans. And so these people feel like they're the underclass, they're looked down upon by the Ashkenazi elites, and the Supreme Court is sort of a symbol of all of that. And so they want to sort of bring it down a peg, right? So you have all of these different interests all, you know, sort of converging on this idea that the Supreme Court is something that needs to be changed. And so then they come up with this plan. The problem for Netanyahu and for the government is that the plan they came up with was so extreme that it didn't look to most Israelis like a a reasonable recalibration of the court's powers. It looked like uh, a revolutionary disempowerment of a major component of Israeli democracy. And that has like completely upended the entire country. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hold up. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Just stepping back from the current judicial overhaul as you describe these fractures, even among sort of the mainstream right and the ultra right in Israel, it makes this persistent narrative that we have in the United States about an eventual two state solution sound absurd because there are so many more constituencies to address here than just two. I wonder Given your recent piece about Netanyahu and his fundamentally pessimistic view of human nature and power, what do you think a realistic path forward, even on the international stage, looks like for Israel and Gaza and the West Bank? So you're absolutely right about the many different constituencies within Israel, right, uh, to really sharpen it when you're talking about a coalition that includes, we just talked about these ultra-Orthodox, very traditionalist religious types who study in yeshiva all day. And then you have the speaker of the Knesset who comes from Netanyahu's Likud party, and he's a married gay man. That coexists, right? That shows you the diversity of just the right side of the Israeli spectrum right there. Um, and then, of course, within the Palestinians, both within Gaza and the West Bank, right? And then not to mention within, so let's start, let's start with Israel itself, right? Israel has 2 million Palestinian citizens. Some of them call themselves Palestinians. Many of them call themselves Arabs or Arab Israelis. Polls show you different numbers, say different things. And they have two very different groups of political parties. The largest political party in Israel now is led by a man named Mansour Abbas, who supports participating in Israeli governments, right, and joining the Israeli coalition. He was in the last Israeli government, that sort of a rainbow government that was designed to keep Netanyahu out of power that fell after a year, right, and included for the first time an Arab party, and that was this party. And on the other hand, some of the people who helped bring down that government were some of these other Arab parties that refused on principle to participate in any government run by the Jewish parties. And so you have this, you know, diversity within Israel like that. And then, of course, you have the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza. And the two of them, put it very, very mildly, do not get along, right? They're actually in a you know state of war, basically. And so creating some sort of two-state solution with all of these different groups has been incredibly difficult for policymakers. And so, you know, if I had a fantastic solution to this, I would not be doing this job, right? Like I write about the problems. If I could solve them, perhaps I would go and try to do that. Um, and there's a tremendous number of incredibly brilliant people have tried. Fundamentally, what you actually need is simply, you know, for more people on both sides to want to figure out a way to end their conflict rather than having reasons to perpetuate. Um, and at different times in Israeli and Palestinian history, you've had those majorities, right? And then you, right now, it looks like you don't, 
right? And I spend time reporting in the West Bank and talking to people there about their situation. And I spend time in Israel. And there's just this tremendous pessimism that reigns, right, from both directions. There's, you know, Netanyahu is an incredibly pessimistic character. And to an extent, his persona and his incredible ability to communicate his worldview has affected the Israeli public, but he's also a representation, right, a reflection of the journey Israelis have gone on since, you know, the early 2000s when you had the Oslo Accords and Bill Clinton and this uh, assumption that down the line there would be some sort of separation between Palestinians and Israelis uh, to where we are now where neither side trusts the other to, to hold to any agreements. And like, even if you had a peace agreement, you wouldn't really trust the other side to keep it. You know, the Israelis look from their perspective that they pulled out in 2004 from uh, Gaza, took up all their settlements, pulled out all their settlers. And of course, today, Hamas runs Gaza and fires rockets from there into Israeli towns that they couldn't reach before. Um, so the theory is, if we then get out of the West Bank, what do you think is going to happen? The people with the guns will win. Even if good people sign the agreement with us, they won't be able to hold the power. And from the Palestinian perspective, they say, you know, look, we signed all these agreements. We made a lot of concessions. Uh, we have lived under occupation for decade upon decade upon decade. And you know, then you come around and no one seems even interested in trying to solve this problem, right? And in fact, Israel's government has gotten more hardline and more extreme, right? And at what point, right, is the party with all of that power, you know, responsible for what's going on in this situation? And so I don't have a, a great solution, um, but I also do think it's not as... Some people look at this and say, well, it, there is no solution or you need some, you know, radical or dramatic one. I still think the two-state solution is the most sensible solution because if you talk to people... You know, and you look at polls across, you know, the land, people want the most political control they can get in the most amount of territory they could get. So if you tried to force both of these these groups to live in one state, for example, which some people suggest, right, they would not like it because they would that would mean ceding a tremendous amount of control to the other fifty percent of the population and every election. You think it's bad in our country where like the whole democracy rests on what happens with the, you know, who gets fifty one percent in this, you know, very, very polarized country. Now imagine it's like 50% Jewish and 50%, you know, Palestinian, right? Israeli, Jewish, and Palestinian. What would elections be like every single time unless there's great trust, which doesn't exist? And so what's much more likely to be sustainable is to have a Palestinian state and an Israeli state. Um, and the Palestinian state would ideally have a Jewish minority and the Israeli state would have, like it does right now, right, a, an Arab-Palestinian minority. But that way, each one would have that it's national self-determination that they so, so deeply desire for very good historical reasons. Um, and functionally, that's just a matter of drawing a line on a map and saying, here's where the line is. And on one side, it's Israel. And on one side, it's Palestine. You just need leaders and populations that are willing to do it. And it requires a lot less trust than, say, living together in the same space, which is functionally what they're doing right now. Yeah. And I can see Netanyahu's very pessimistic worldview in the sort of post-Oslo Accords to how we got to where Israel is now. With regards to Palestine, what I can see the pessimistic worldview present is in the Abraham Accords and the normalization of relationships with the surrounding countries. How do you see that pessimistic worldview play out there? You know, it looks increasingly like they'll even normalize relationships with Saudi Arabia. And that to me is so interesting in contrast with this hard right lurch with Palestine. Yeah. Well, so so the 
one thing to understand is that Netanyahu is a pessimist before Israeli society became pessimistic, right? He was running against the Oslo Accords, right? And he was running against and saying these are naive ideas that people have. None of this is going to work. And then slowly but surely, Israeli society overall has come around to part of that position. Uh, but his pessimism is so much more fundamental, right? It is about just that the world is run, and he says this explicitly, right? The world is about jockeying for power with other actors for better or for worse, and the weak get destroyed and the strong continue and live on. A lot of Jews don't actually agree with that. Uh, for one thing, Jews have not been great in number for a very long time, uh, for their entire history. Jews are, you know, 0.2% of the current world population. And so obviously not particularly numerous, not particularly powerful overall, have only had Israel, the state, you know, for like, you know, uh, 70 or so years and uh, haven't had sovereignty in Israel for much of their history. They had it. It was taken away. They had it again. It was taken away. And now they have it one more time. And so it's not that Jews were powerful, but yet they survived much longer than others. So I'm giving my little critique of his worldview, but that's what he believes. Uh, he thinks that the strong survive and the weak eventually just fade. And so in that context, right, he's like, I will give no concessions to the Palestinians, right, because that signals weakness and we're going to outlast them in this conflict. And I'm happy to make alliances with other states. Who, and he sees the Abraham Accords as affirmation of everything that he has been working on, because he says, look, I, everyone said we couldn't have peace with the Arab world unless we gave lots of concessions to the Palestinians so the Arab world would sign on and accept us. And he said, no, you have it all backwards. The Arab world doesn't accept us because they think we're weak or we're temporary or impermanent and we're going to be destroyed. And, you know, there have been several wars that the Arab world waged to try to erase Israel. And he's like, only when they think we're really here to stay because we're the, you know, the biggest guy in the room, right? So then they'll, they'll, be, they'll be for it. And in this, he's been borne out. It, you know, it's very much a self-interest play on the part of these Arab states. They're not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, right? They're doing it because Israel is an economic and technological powerhouse. Well, and they're getting stuff in return. And they're getting stuff in return from the United States and also from Israel. You know, it's like, uh, it's it's a self-interest play. And his idea is like, you know, we're the strongest country with the strongest alliances in the region, right? And you want to be friends with us. And so to him, it actually tracks very nicely with his pessimism and sort of alliances with the strong and uh, setting up what... Uh, one, one sort of conservative Zionist philosopher called the Iron Wall, the idea that we're sort of immovable and we will never leave. And so that's how he, he understands uh, this moment. Pessimism bordering on cynicism, I would say. For sure. The critique of Netanyahu has always been that he's, uh, the, the line is a creature of the bunker, sort of uh, having experienced many, you know, centuries of Jewish uh, history as uh, oppression and persecution, that he does not trust the world to like do something different uh, if given the option. And so all decisions are made in uh, an environment of distrust. You'll never go broke being a pessimist in, sadly, in today's world. But it does mean <laughs> you sometimes miss opportunities for revolutionary change because you're always taking the under on anything. Like, so I wrote about this in The Atlantic, right, that Netanyahu always bets against any, you know, hopeful vision of future progress, right? Whether it's coming from Elon Musk and he's talking about how amazing AI is going to revolutionize the world because... Bibi did this conversation recently with Musk in San Francisco, and it's very interesting because Netanyahu is clearly very skeptical of what Musk is selling, even though they're supposed to be sitting down for sort of like a PR stunt, right? That's not supposed to be hard, you know, hardball. But Netanyahu asked a bunch of hardball questions to Musk about uh, about whether AI is really going to make the world better because he thinks it's going to create winners and losers like everything else, right? Whether it's the Iran deal, right, which Netanyahu did not trust to actually work or for Iran to adhere to, right, or concessions to the Palestinians. Right. All of these things. Right. He just always bets against it. And, you know, his critics say that sort of pessimism, it holds you hostage, you know, because the world does change. Right. And you're never going to be open to it if that's how you always proceed in life.
I tend to compare Netanyahu to Trump mentally, but as I was reading today, especially about this deal with Germany for a missile defense system, I was getting Mitch McConnell vibes. Like, you don't have to love me, but I'm such a player on the big stage that you you need me in this seat. That was actually <laughs> what he ran his last election campaign on. Uh, he ran throughout separate election campaigns over the years saying, I know that you may not like all of my politics, or you may not, and this includes not just left-wing people, but people to his right, like people in his coalition who find him to be a squish, right? And he, they feel that he rolls over when he should be fighting for whatever right-wing thing they want to do. But you can't find anyone who can do what I can do, right? Especially on the international stage. And I've written my own critique of that. I think he overstates, let's just say, his accomplishments, but that's part of his brilliance is that he is an incredible salesman for himself. Right. And he can basically refashion any event into something that he intended to happen. Right. And that is part of his plan. Um, and how much of it is and how much of it isn't questionable. But that's still an incredible skill for a politician. You read like books about like Benjamin Disraeli, the uh, British prime minister and other famous politicians. And this is the thing that politicians do, which is that they are very good at telling stories where events that happen that are outside their control become part of what they control. And depending on how good you are, right, you can really bring people along with that. And so sometimes, you know, I think that they always often taking credit for things that were happening because of larger historical forces that he didn't very much have, have much to do with. But he's good at presenting it that way. And that's why it's a big difference from like him and Trump. I mean, Trump is, uh, is pure id, pure instinct. Uh, and Netanyahu is pure calculation. There's nothing he does that he hasn't thought 25 different ways about why he's doing it. So like, the, you know, they, they may align together because it was mutually beneficial in various different ways. But they're completely different thinkers and people in their approach to, to politics and to life. Wondering, you know, no one's immortal, even the best, most capable politician. What you're seeing as the future of Israeli politics when Netanyahu is no longer on the world stage or the Israeli stage? Assuming Netanyahu does not manage to create a, a robo uh, Netanyahu with uh, some <laughs> uh, AI version of himself, you know, which he shouldn't put past him. It's a great question, um, and it's a really big question that I think a lot of Israelis haven't really grappled with, uh, certainly on the right, which is that one of the ways that Netanyahu has kept himself in power has been by uh, systematically drumming out anyone who could possibly have challenged his power within the Israeli right, within his mainstream right-wing Likud party. And he slowly but surely transformed the Likud party into a pretty diverse, uh, effective you know, right-wing political vehicle into a Netanyahu political vehicle, or a critic would say a cult of personality. And very, very few of the people in the party today have the skills or stature that he has to do what he does. And he has not cultivated protégés. He has not taught people how to do what he does. He has not brought people under his wing. Some of this may be that he is a difficult personality just in general, but some of it is the sort of paranoia and the fear that if I give these skills to somebody else, they will eventually knock me off, as often happens in politics. Uh, but the consequence is, is that you have a, a leader in his early 70s who either through, you know, the nat natural course of life or through his court cases will not be prime minister forever. And then an Israeli right that simply doesn't have anybody like him that they could put forward afterwards. And that's by his design, but it's not to the benefit of the country nor to his own political party. And so what you might see actually is that uh, there are different possibilities. You could have some of the people he drummed out of the party. Uh, what did they do? Some of them left politics, but some of those people started other satellite smaller right-wing parties. And in theory, if Netanyahu leaves, maybe they go back. Uh, but it depends if like the Netanyahu-fied party is willing to take them. Um, and if not, well, right now, when Israel goes to parliamentary elections, there's tons of parties, but the two 
there's the biggest party, one of the biggest parties is Netanyahu's Likud, and then there's usually some opposition party or two, right, that are very large, and then a lot of smaller parties. If Netanyahu is no longer running Likud, it's possible a bunch of the voters for Netanyahu's Likud say, well, we've lost the big guy like we talked about. I'm going to look at some of those other little right-wing parties. I'm no longer a Likud voter. I was a Netanyahu voter, and he's gone, right? And so you'll start to see a lot more smaller parties cobbling together governments in Israel rather than any dominant parties at all. The Israeli right will fragment in interesting ways, which will have unforeseeable consequences in terms of what Israeli coalitions will look like. Because again, there's 120 seats in the Israeli parliament. You need 61 to create a coalition. And if you've got like a five-seat party here, a seven-seat party there, you could create a jigsaw puzzle in all sorts of ways. But there isn't like uh, an obvious candidate to succeed Netanyahu. We haven't really touched on this much, but on the Palestinian side, a very similar thing is going on with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, who is in his late 70s and uh, doesn't hold elections, so no one could kick him out. But eventually he is going to pass on, and there also isn't a clear successor to him. And so we're in this sort of moment of uncertainty and transition and also lots of under behind the scenes, a lot of people jockeying for position. That variety of possible outcomes feels true of the judicial review of this overhaul as well. As I understand it, the Supreme Court is expected to rule on the cases in front of it concerning these reforms by sometime in January, and they could say the reforms can't stand. They could say they're on pause, hoping that a new parliament will reconsider. I wonder if there is an outcome that's foreseeable from that court that would be just devastating to Netanyahu, or is he such a tactician that he'll be able to work with whatever happens? I think he has plans for whatever happens. That doesn't mean those plans are going to work. Uh, again, sometimes he's like spinning things as his plan after whatever it is that actually happened. I do think that the Supreme Court has the ability to, you know, throw the current coalition into recrimination and chaos uh, if it strikes down some of the reforms or if it, as you said, like postpones their, you know, enactment or, you know, in other ways messes with it. There are two ways that can go. Um, you could have the coalition sort of say, well, we couldn't get it past the Supreme Court. Now we have a constitutional crisis. Are we willing to ignore the Supreme Court? Right. And then you have to have the fight amongst themselves will be very, very vicious and uh, obviously very frightening to many Israelis because you'll have literally the government fighting over whether or not to listen to the Supreme Court. And that has unforeseeable consequences. You could also have them say, well, we just need to pass a lot more of this judicial overall package, because remember, this all that's passed so far is a very small component of it. It's probably the least consequential part of it. Um, we need to replace the judges. We need to be able to override what they do. Right? You pass all of that stuff and basically just say, like, we've now just completely done away with the Supreme Court as a major force in Israeli politics. So it could galvanize them, right? It could cause them to, you know, collapse into internecine fighting and just sort of gum up the works. It, it's very hard to know. It really depends also, like, how much infighting there is. And I would also say that there's a very big uh, X factor that we've sort of referenced here, but not in this context, which is normalization with Saudi Arabia, which is something the Biden administration has been working very hard on uh, diplomatically in the region. Uh, but in order to normalize with Saudi Arabia, they're going to need to make some sort of concessions to the Palestinians. The Saudis have made that very clear. The Biden people have made that very clear. And so you have this sort of demand that's going to be made of Netanyahu to get this great prize. And then he's going to have to turn to this very right-wing coalition and say, we've got to do these things. It's not clear he can do that, right? And so this also may create significant problems for his coalition, ironically, sort of pyrrhic victory. 
The irony is, of course, is that within Israeli politics, there's a majority for solving all of these problems within the parliament right now. There's a bunch of centrist parties and central left parties that could work with parts of the Israeli right and pass a Supreme Court reform by consensus that most Israelis would like, and that could ratify a deal with the Saudis and make concessions to the Palestinians because that would be fine by them. And Netanyahu could be part of that, except that He's on trial for corruption and nobody trusts him because he's always drumming out every possible successor, right? And basically has alienated everyone who's not, you know, his closest confidants. And that has made it impossible for anyone to serve in government with him from the center or the center left, right? They all pledge we won't sit with Netanyahu because we consider him to be corrupt and untrustworthy. Um, and they have good reason to think that he's not trustworthy because a couple governments ago, one of the opposition parties actually broke their pledge and did a joint government with Netanyahu, and it was supposed to be Netanyahu for a little bit as prime minister, and then the head of that party as the prime minister, and Netanyahu managed to collapse the government rather than let the other guy become prime minister. And so basically there's nobody left who trusts this guy, and therefore nobody who will sit with him, and their voters would punish them if they did, so they can't. And so that Israel's parliament, even though there's an Israeli majority for solving a lot of these social problems, there isn't a political majority to it. Well, this is so helpful. Thank you very much for giving us all of this context. Do you have time to hang with us for a little outside of politics segment? Absolutely. Way less depressing. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code Podcast 15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. 
Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. We always end our show by talking about something outside of politics. We've been talking about Netanyahu's pessimism. I feel like you have been writing in The Atlantic and on social media in a very optimistic way about what social media can be. And I wonder what sparked your interest in this conversation and what the response has been to your writing. So my recent interest in writing about how we do social media and whether we could do it better is is sparked by the fact that you know, one of the major social media platforms has dramatically collapsed as, uh, you know, Elon Musk took over Twitter and rebranded it and changed a lot of things about it. And lots of people are mad about that. And they say, I, I don't like this. And it's, I think that was a good opportunity to say, well, there's a lot of things about social media we don't really like, right? And maybe some of this has heightened that for us. Um, but there's a lot of ways that we treat each other on social media that isn't healthy. There's a tremendous amount of, you know, like the stuff that you would never say to somebody to their face, right? Or in person, right? That people feel comfortable saying online. And is that always good? The way that people comment on articles that they haven't read. And yes, I have an interest in this since I write articles. Um, but I also think like, what kind of uh, discourse do we have when people are uh, constantly uh, arguing over stuff that they never even bothered to read? It's just a very weird sort of situation and you see it a lot. And so I tried to say like, okay, we have this moment where people are looking for new social media platforms. They're upset because one of the ones they used has been degrading in their eyes. What would it look like to make better ones, right? Because we now have Facebook's got their threads and there's this thing called Blue Sky and there's a bunch of others. And so I started writing articles suggesting what both companies building these platforms could do better and what people themselves using the platforms could do better, regardless of whether the companies you know, get their act together and make healthier platforms. Because uh, a lot of this stuff comes down to how we conduct ourselves on social media. Like no one is forcing you to comment on an article you didn't read and to like respond only to the headline when you didn't actually click the link, right? Nobody's making you do that. You don't have to do it, right? Even if it's very tempting, you know, and, and nobody is sort of making you argue for no reason for hours on end with someone who just makes you feel terrible and that you're never going to persuade right? Maybe that person you should just block, right? Or maybe you shouldn't engage with them at all and recognize that that's not what social media is for. Like, so there's all sorts of just like basic practical things, you know, that we could ask ourselves about social media as a technology that we don't always do. And it's not really just about social media. It's more, we live in an age where a lot of new technologies are coming down the pipeline, like artificial intelligence and its many permutations. And it's not a question of, are these things going to happen? It's, you know, basically when they're going to happen and then what we're going to do about it. And we can either have them sort of foisted upon us and they're going to use us, 
or we can consciously decide how to use them. You know, and social media sort of just felt, you know, came onto the scene and people signed up and it was free. So no one really thought very much about it. And then it suddenly changed how we interacted with each other, how we related to politicians, how we elected politicians, all sorts of things. It changed how we talked because suddenly sound bites of a certain type went really far on social media. So more and more people started talking that way, even though is that the healthiest way to talk about complex things? I don't think so. So the, the technology started using us because no one had a collective conversation about what is this good for and how could we use it well? And so I'm trying to have that conversation belatedly about social media. I'd love for us to have that conversation about technology in general. Uh, I think about it in terms of my dad, right, who was a wonderful educator. And he would often integrate, you know, new technologies into the classroom. He became like one of the tech coordinators in his school, which is unusual for someone who's, you know, one of the older teachers. But he was very good with technology. Uh, but the secret to it is not being able to figure out how to use the technology. It's to know when it actually adds to your classroom and makes it easier to teach something in a way you couldn't before, right? You don't just put on a smart board because it's cool and you can tell the parents and say, look, we have smart boards in all our rooms. Okay, but what is the purpose? Are the kids just watching television on it during recess, right? Like, what is it actually doing? And if you can ask that question about pretty much any technology and you say, what is it that I want to do in life and how does this help me do that? And is there a way it can help me do that? And if not, maybe it's not for you, right? Even though it might be for somebody else. And I think we'd all be better off if we asked those questions of these technologies, you know, whether it's social media, right, or it's the next AI chatbot or many other things. And like, that's a that bigger project, right, that I think we haven't done a great job of to this point. Um, we're always catching up. But I think you can actually come up with thoughtful ways to approach these things and, you know, make conscious decisions in our lives about how we use technology. And I, you know, I hope that we can do that. So am I an optimist? I don't know. Um, but I guess there's an inherent optimism in writing these articles and hoping that enough people will see them and read them and think, yeah, I can do that. And, you know, that can slowly but surely make a little bit of change. Well, the conscientiousness you speak of reminds me that we just passed Yom Kippur. I, I don't know if there's a phrase for being jealous of another religion's religious observance, but I have it <laughs> uh, for Yom Kippur. So I wondered if you could speak to the importance of that in the religious calendar. So, you know, people don't get confused when the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene post a picture of a Hanukkah symbol during Yom Kippur? Yeah. So right now we're in this part of the Jewish calendar where there's a series of Jewish holidays at the very beginning of what is the Jewish New Year, which goes by the lunar calendar. And so it starts with Rosh Hashanah, which is literally the New Year, right? So it's the Jewish New Year. And then 10 days after that, you've got Yom Kippur. And this is a sort of a, a set period, a sort of period of uh, introspection and reflection. And it begins with Rosh Hashanah and it culminates in Yom Kippur, um, where you know, Jews spend a lot of time in synagogue. Uh, many Jews will spend most of the day in synagogue. Uh, even Jews who are not particularly religious or observant often spend a lot of time in synagogue on Yom Kippur. And there are all sorts of prayers that are said that are, you know, were written over the many different centuries that Jews have been around, expressing what we consider to be our failings, right? And uh, ways that we hope to be better and ways that we hope God will, will help us and forgive us to be better in the coming year. Uh, and for many people, this has uh, significance, even if they're not particularly, you know, religious or even if they believe in God, because the liturgy is uh, very thoughtful about the ways human beings are frail and flawed, but also capable of redemption and changing themselves. And so it's a set time of the calendar. It's sort of set for like taking stock of your year. It's sort of like New Year's resolutions, but if you put it all really on steroids and force yourself to think about it and talk about it all the time, <laughs> and you could never do that the whole year without going crazy, right? But we can do it for a set period of time. And obviously, a, a big characteristic of Yom Kippur is that you you basically try to keep everything else out of mind. So you, you fast all day from sundown the night before to sundown at the end of the next day. 
and you're just focused entirely on these ideas and themes. But, you know, and it's also a beautiful day because by the end, it culminates in sort of this idea that, the you know, the congregation has been forgiven, right? By doing these, uh, you know, these rituals and saying these prayers and thinking about these things and resolving to be better, that collectively we have been forgiven. And so there's like a celebration at the end and a moment of catharsis uh, that's very powerful. And so, you know, that that is, uh, you know, sort of in a nutshell, but there's, you know, infinite depth to any, you know, religions like Judaism, Christianity, Islam, many others been around for a very long time. There's an incredible amount of depth to this sort of stuff. And one of the amazing things about something like Yom Kippur is that you can live your entire life and you will not have gotten to the bottom of it because there's just too much. Love it. It feels like we could use that kind of ceremony around social media where we all admit our failings and we all admit what we've done wrong and we ask for forgiveness and redemption and, and try to do better. One year for Yom Kippur, I did write a somewhat satirical article about the 10 greatest social media sins that people should repent for. Um, yes. You know, a number, you know, whatever number nine was, you know, commenting without reading the article. And number 10 was uh, adding filler content to your listicle to get to a round number. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I do think there are things that we can think about. But it's absolutely true. One of the things that I, I, I that troubles me about social media is that um, I used to do this as an iron, ironic thing, you know, on, you know, the new year, you know, on December 31st. Congratulations to Twitter on another year in which it got nothing wrong and had no need for introspection or to consider why it could be better. Uh, because Twitter is always moving too fast to ever ask, did we get last month right? Let alone, you know, last week. But wouldn't it be great if there was sort of like a, a you know, a pause button and it said, okay, here's what was really viral the last week. Was that good? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't think we like what we saw, but that's why we just keep going. So we don't have to look back and uh, Yom Kippur mm-hmm. and things like that are designed to make us look back for a little bit. And how much better prepared would we be for new forms of technology if we did that kind of retrospective? Because I, thinking about your, yep. your dad saying, what does this add to my classroom? It is very hard on the front end to say, and what will it cost? And is it worth that cost to get this addition? But if we if we did more regular stock takes of our use of technology, maybe we would get better at answering that question. Uh-huh. Exactly right. Because we do have the ability to, we might not be able to predict the future, but we can look at our own past use of technologies and see what our own propensities are and perhaps what our own failings are. And that can help us project better how we could use something else. Well, Yair, you have just joined us for a very classic fancy politics experience from judicial overhauls in Israel to Yom Kippur and Twitter. And I think that it's (laughs) been great. So thank you so much again for joining us. Yeah, from worldly justice to divine justice. That's right. (laughs) Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to Yair for his time and expertise. We'll be back in your ears on Friday. Until then, have the best week available to you. Pantsu Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Pinton is our Director of Community Engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley. <laughs> <laughs>
Wins. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Emily Helen Olson. Lee Shea McDonough. Morgan McHugh. Jen Ross. Sabrina Drago. Becca Dorval. Christina Quartararo. Jeff Davis, Joshua Allen, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. See, this yeah, is why I like to add on to that question, you, too. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I, I was going to compliment like, you. Yeah, yeah, let him compliment oh, us, Sarah. And then, Jeff, I'll let you compliment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, please, please, please. It's like, further, you got to get this in. <laughs>